0: You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. Uh, One of the primary contractors was a gentleman by the name of Jasper Strong. Uh, Strong uh, enslaved uh, somewhere around 100 uh, men of African descent when construction began. Uh, But by 1860, Strong will enslave 200 men and women Mm -hmm. uh, who he largely uh, rents out or to use the, the Term appropriate for that time, uh, he hired out. So there's going to be possibly a couple hundred enslaved men uh, who Army engineers forced to build Fort Pickens. Uh, they are going to receive large quantities of bricks that are being uh, shipped out to the island on uh, different vessels. Uh, those bricks also uh, coming from brickyards that relied on enslaved people. To produce. Okay. And so uh, it's one of the great ironies in uh, wrapped in Fort Pickens. It's a fort being constructed to protect the United States and the basic ideals that the nation had been founded upon, uh, to include uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a place where all men are created equal. Yet it's a fort where crimes are committed and enslaved people, people of color, are, are forced to labor. So there's a great sacrifice um,
1: that comes with constructing for Pickens. That was Casimir Ruzeki, park ranger at Gulf Islands National Seashore. And I'm your host, Misty Little. If there ever was a podcast to deviate from my typical episodes, this is the one. I take a turn from our typical natural history land management episodes to bring you some cultural history, focused around Fort Pickens and the Santa Rosa Island area of Gulf Islands National Seashore. When I reached out to the Park Service to see if a representative would be interested in coming on the podcast, wasn't sure what to expect and to whom I would be speaking with. But Casmer brings out so much information that I wasn't completely aware of in the episode that unless you specialize in Gulf Coast maritime and military history, you will certainly learn a lot from what Casmer has to say. From the native tribes who inhabited the region to Casmer's recent discovery that brought to light that Fort Pickens served as a component of the Underground Railroad during the American Civil War, you might find yourself wanting to jot down notes as you would in a college history class, because I know I certainly did. I hope that after listening to Casimir speak to the unique depth of history in this area, that you will take it to heart the next time you find yourself walking down the beaches of Santa Rosa Island, and certainly as you begin or end your hike of the Florida Trail at Fort Pickens. All right, on to this very fascinating and eye-opening episode. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate you taking your time and getting coordinated to to come on the podcast. I, I know I put the, the call in. I wasn't sure exactly who I would be speaking to, but uh, I appreciate you taking your time to, to do this. Um, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit about your you know, your educational background and your position at uh, the National Seashore and, and, what, and how long you've been there.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you again for having us. Uh, my name is Kazma Rosecki. Um, I uh, studied at Purdue University, uh, majored in communication. And uh, while attending college, I took an internship at a national park in West Virginia called Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. Yeah. Uh, for some of your listeners, they may be familiar with Harper's Ferry because the Appalachian Trail. Uh, runs right through there, Um, and it was just days into that internship that I fell in love with the National Park Service, with the National Park Service's mission, um, and knew that that's a career that I wanted to pursue, Um, and so from Harper's Ferry, I I ended up doing a few more internships after graduating, uh, another internship at Harper's Ferry, went on and I did a summertime internship at Gettysburg National Military Park, where um, after an internship, I became a seasonal park ranger at Gettysburg and continued to work there seasonally until 2015. And then in 2015, I moved up to Boston National Historical Park uh, and worked there uh, along what is called the Freedom Trail. Um, It's a much shorter trail than the Florida Trail. Uh, and it runs through an urban area, but it links uh, sites related to the American Revolution, Uh, but it also will take folks to a World War II era uh, destroyer. Uh, And then from Boston, I came down to Gulf Islands National Seashore in late 2016. And so I've been here since late 2016, and uh, now I am a park ranger. Uh, I work in a um, a division in the park called the Resource Education Division. And my job is to share the history um, of the people, the places and the events in the park with the public. Uh, And I do that through tours. I do it through demonstrations, uh, which in the past have included using muskets and a cannon.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh,
0: We provide uh, stories about the park through wayside exhibits, which you can find located in different areas out in the park. So some of the content uh, I help research and then write and then edit. Um, I also help uh, with exhibits that we might put inside a museum or visitor center uh, as another way to Uh, share the story of a national park, or in my case, Gulf Islands, with guests who come here.
1: Okay. So I guess, how is your days or weeks structured? Do you partially giving tours, partially doing office work, preparing, you know, these exhibits? Is it just kind of varies by season?
0: Yeah, uh, so it it does vary by season. Uh, Although here at Gulf Islands, uh, I I think we are busy almost year round. Uh, Busy, that is, when we don't have severe weather uh, impacting our operations. Um, But uh, typically during the summer months, we're offering daily tours. So I might be the one actually leading a tour Um, or if I am in the office, I I might be researching and developing a new type of program uh, to offer. Um, Or I might be assisting uh, with uh, leading interns and volunteers, uh, and mentoring them so that they can assist me uh, and other park rangers reach more park guests who come here. Okay, okay.
1: So, you know, people hiking the Florida Trail are, are probably they're familiar with Gulf Islands as they're walking down the seashore and they come to the, the terminus of the Florida Trail, but they may not know that it's actually a, a national seashore that straddles two different states, and there's a state kind of separating the two states. <laughs> so right. how, how big is the, the National Seashore? Um, can you give a little information about the history and how it was founded and why it was founded?
0: Sure. So Gulf Islands National Seashore is one of 423 national parks, uh, which are spread out across the United States. Um, of those 423 national parks, uh, 10 are called National Seashores, And Gulf Islands is the largest. So we are America's largest seashore. Okay. And it's a very big park and totaling over 139,000 acres. Oh, wow. Uh, As you mentioned already, it's one park, but it's located in two states, uh, in Mississippi and in Florida. In Mississippi, there's a mainland area in the town of Ocean Springs called the Davis Bayou area. But then most of the national seashore in Mississippi uh, exists out in the water, in Mississippi Sound and on the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so th- some of the islands include portions of Cat Island, uh, Ship Island, Horn Island, West Pettyboy and Pettyboy Islands. In Florida, Gulf Islands is scattered around the Greater Pensacola area. Uh, your audience is very uh, familiar, most likely with the Fort Pickens area, um, but there's other areas here that are a part of the seashore and those cl- include the Perdido Key area, which you can actually see from Fort Pickens. It's just located west of Pensacola Pass. Uh, there are 64 acres on the Naval Air Station Pensacola, the home of the Blue Angels, that is also a part of the National Seashore. We call it the Fort Barrancas area. In Gulf Breeze, uh, a town outside Pensacola, there is what we call the Naval Live Oaks area, which has about 10 miles of trails through a maritime forest. It's a very beautiful area of the park. Uh, And then out on the island, there's actually three areas. uh, When I say island, I mean Santa Rosa Island. Uh, There are three areas of the park. Uh, the furthest to the east near Fort Walton beach is what we call the Okaloosa area. Um, And then in the middle of the island, sort of between Navarre beach and Pensacola beach, we have the Santa Rosa Island uh, where uh, we have Opal beach, a favorite destination for many guests. And then of course we have uh, finally arrived to the Fort Pickens area of the seashore located on the far Western tip of Santa Rosa Island. Now, the seashore is large, but what I think is fascinating and your um, listeners will find interesting is that a majority of Gulf islands, over 82% is marine habitat in open water.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So if you were to stop on the Gulf of Mexico on Santa Rosa Island uh, and swim one mile out into the Gulf of Mexico, you would still be within Gulf islands, national seashore.
1: Wow. So does that come with uh, different regulations then? So, I mean, just say you're fishing out there, you may not know this. (laughs) I'm just curious if the regulations are different than if you were going offshore, you know, down, down the state a little bit and you're in state waters instead of, is that not, is that considered national waters then?
0: Uh, Yeah. So you're, uh, Getting into possibly different jurisdictions. <laughs> okay. uh, but I will what I will say is that for the most part, um, in both Mississippi and in Florida, uh, fishing regulations in the park are the same as state fishing regulations. Okay, okay. I was just um, and then when it comes to the uh, Fort Pickens public fishing pier, uh, you do not need a fishing license if you are fishing from that pier, which is not far from the trail terminus in the Fort Pickens area. Okay, okay.
1: So you've mentioned, you know, National Seashore is part of the national park system. And I know, you know, the Florida Trail starts at Big Cypress National Preserve in the south, and it's a national preserve with a little bit of a different management standpoint than a pure national park. Now are national seashores managed a little different as well, or are they managed kind of the same as a national park?
0: So I am not a park manager, um, but what I I can say is that there are something uh, around 28 different designations in the National Park Service. And we've mentioned several of them, uh, National Park, uh, National Preserve, and National Seashore. In In all 10 National Seashores, hunting is permitted, Uh, So that is one of the characteristics that makes a a national seashore different from a management standpoint than, say, a national park. Um, National seashores typically don't have uh, resources like gas and oil or timber to extract. Uh, So in national parks, oil and gas or lumber extraction is not authorized. Right. Uh, In national preserves. Um, as long as the natural values of the landscape aren't impacted, uh, oil and gas or lumber extraction could potentially be authorized. Right. Uh, So those are just a few of the differences. Uh, National preserves are are, are similar, uh, I think, in uh, many ways to national parks. Um, uh, They cover a lot of space. Uh, They have a lot of natural and historical and cultural resources and just uh, I think are are so much larger in those different ways than compared to a seashore.
1: Right. right. So when was, I don't remember if you said this when you were talking earlier, so when was the Gulf Islands National Seashore founded and was it specifically to protect these different forts that were scattered around this area or was it just to protecting more of the resources of these unique ecosystems?
0: Yeah, so I didn't get to mention that and um, getting to say this today is a great opportunity. So uh, Gulf Islands National Seashore was established in January, 1971. So here in the year 2021, we're actually marking the seashore's 50th anniversary as a national park. There were some attempts to establish some type of national park unit here uh, in the Pensacola area before World War II. Uh, But I I think the uh, the United States entry into the war really sort of disrupted uh, any of those plans. But it'll be in the 1960s and leading up through 1971 that there's a lot of activism locally in Mississippi and here in Northwest Florida for the establishment of a national seashore. Um, and the, the forts, uh, the one fort in Mississippi on Ship Island called Fort Massachusetts, and then the string of forts that exist here on Pensacola Bay, which include uh, Fort Pickens, uh, the Spanish Water Battery, Fort Barrancas, and Advanced Redoubt, they would all uh, play a central role in the establishment of the seashore. And in fact, those different historic structures are mentioned in the parks enabling legislation.
1: Okay.
0: So uh, this park would be established by an act of Congress. And again, the historic sites, um, may, namely in those forts, would, would be a major contributing factor. Something I, I should uh, allude to as well, and I, I didn't um, mention this before, is national seashores are also largely set aside for the recreational opportunities that they provide. Okay. um making them uh unique compared to a lot of other parks um right. in the united states
1: right right so because it was primarily i mean it was it seemed like a mix of reasons i mean i think recreation is also a cultural use it's just a present-day cultural use but it seems like a cultural history was a big part of why the, why the seashore was created, but maybe we can just talk about this cultural history of this area uh, and we'll we'll focus primarily on Fort Pickens and Santa Rosa Island, just because of the nature of this podcast, but, you know, feel free to mention anything else outside of, of that as well. But can you give a little bit of background on some of the history of this area as, you know, people are walking down the beach, approaching this final destination of their hike. So they can kind of think a little bit about, you know, where they've been walking and the people that have been there in the past and, uh, you know, go from there.
0: Yeah. So when you walk along Santa Rosa Island, uh, whether you're uh, within the national seashore or outside, um, you are actually uh, walking on the, ancest- uh, the ancestral lands of the Creek people. Um, The area would be colonized beginning in the late uh, mid to late 1500s. So you would have a lot of Spanish, uh, some French and then British presences here on Pensacola Bay. The territory uh, or the colony rather of West Florida will become a part of the United States in 1821. And shortly after Uh, That happened, the US military began to come into Pensacola Bay and explore this as an option for development. Uh, The US Navy would deem Pensacola Bay uh, a prize on the Gulf of Mexico for its uh, natural depth uh, and proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, And so it's going to be in 1825 that uh, legislation has passed establishing the Pensacola Navy Yard, uh, which would cease to exist in the early 1900s and be reborn as the Naval Air Station Pensacola. But it's because of the, the harbor, the, uh, the bay itself, and the presence of that Navy Yard that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers will come in and they will determine Uh, How many forts are needed to protect the Bay and the Navy Yard and where those forts ought to be located? Uh, The first and the largest fort to be built on the Bay is Fort Pickens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Army engineers would have the fort constructed between 1829 and 1834. The contractors relied on what are termed verbal gentlemen's agreements. Uh, So they would create these agreements with contractors to have the fort constructed. Uh, One of the primary contractors was a gentleman by the name of Jasper Strong. Uh, Strong uh, enslaved uh, somewhere around 100 uh, men of African descent when construction began. Uh, But by 1860, Strong will enslave 200 men and women uh, who he largely... Uh, rents out, or to use the, the term appropriate for that time, uh, he hired out. So there's going to be possibly a, a couple hundred enslaved men uh, who army engineers forced to build Fort Pickens. Uh, they are going to receive large quantities of bricks that are being uh, shipped out to the island on uh, different vessels. Uh, those bricks also uh, coming from brickyards that relied on enslaved people to produce. Okay. And so uh, it's one of the great ironies in uh, wrapped in Fort Pickens. It's a fort being constructed to protect the United States and the basic ideals that the nation had been founded upon uh, to include uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a place where all men are created equal. Yet it's a fort where crimes are committed and enslaved people, people of color are forced to labor. So there's a great sacrifice um, that comes with constructing Fort Pickens. Uh, The Fort uh, was very large for its time uh, and it would represent one of the more uh, powerful, one of the more destructive weapons available to the U.S. military Hmm. Um, when it was completed. Uh, It had the the capability of mounting just over 200 cannon of different sizes, Um, if need be. uh, Somewhere between five and 600 soldiers could be sent into the fort uh, to defend this section of the coastline from any foreign interference. Um, If it needed, uh, if officers needed to, uh, as many as 1,200. Uh, soldiers could be placed to defend Fort Pickens. Uh, But no foreign powers would ever uh, attack the United States at Fort Pickens, or for that matter, any other of the 41 masonry forts that were built on the Atlantic coast, elsewhere on the Gulf Coast, and uh, two out on the Pacific coastline. Okay. Uh, So when somebody does also come into uh, the Fort Pickens area or if they lay their eyes on the fort, you only see one small piece of a very large, a very expansive yet integrated system of national defense that ranged from Maine to South Florida, from South Florida to New Orleans, and then all the way out on San Francisco
1: Bay. Wow. So, you you mentioned um, how many people were there, you mentioned how many people could could potentially fill the fort, but how many people were living there in the military at any given time? Just a few hundred people. Right.
0: Yeah, so it really varies uh, depending on the time period that you're looking at. Uh, Fort Pickens and those other forts built in the United States like it were really uh, meant to be constructed And then not necessarily filled with soldiers and weapons. Uh, The belief being that one, these bastions on the coastline would project to ships of foreign countries that the United States uh, was ready to mark its line in the sand uh, and it was ready to defend the coast. It provoked. Okay. And two, this would allow for um, the republic uh, for civilian control um, over the U.S. military Uh, for a large part uh, in our nation's history. uh, After a a, well, when a conflict came along, uh, the army would be increased through volunteers. Um, And then when the conflict came to an end, uh, those volunteers would be mustered out of service and sent home and they would return to civilian life. Um, So these forts would buy time in the 1800s for the United States to potentially respond to attack by calling up the volunteers and then sending those volunteers to different destinations, wherever that might be and wherever they might be needed. Um, The greatest concentration of soldiers, uh, but also sailors and Marines uh, at Fort Pickens comes in the early 1860s during the American Civil War.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that seems like that was the biggest time that this, the forts were used and maybe you can talk a little bit about the civil war. And I believe that it never changed into Confederate hands. Is that what I understand? Uh,
0: yes, that is correct. So Fort Pickens occupies what I think is a very interesting place in the pages of history um, and in the, in the pages of the American civil war. Um, it takes uh, an early role in the uh, story of the Civil War. So in the winter of 1860 and 1861, uh, Southern slaveholding states begin to formally leave the Union or secede from the Union. Uh, And they are doing this uh, because of the recent election in which President well, then president-elect Abraham Lincoln uh, had uh, been victorious. Mm -hmm. Um, But more than that, the states that would go on to immediately secede in the wake of Lincoln's rise, uh, they would see his rise um, as a great threat to the institution of slavery, but also to the uh, existence of white supremacy and white domination over black individuals, especially those in the South. Um, and so South Carolina, uh, South Carolina would secede in December of 1860. Their action would encourage Florida to also consider its uh, relationships uh, or a relation, uh, relationship in the union. Um, it's going to be in early January, 1861. Uh, Before Lincoln is sworn in and officially made president that a a young Union officer uh, in command of about 50 soldiers, artillerymen, uh, he begins to receive reports that Alabama militia were starting to take over a federal arsenal and federal forts uh, in Alabama. Uh, Two of the the forts would be Fort uh, Morgan and Fort Gaines, very similar uh, to that of Fort Pickens. And this is going to be alarming to this officer. So he will try to uh, get guidance, direction, orders uh, from Washington, D.C. But the best that he can do is cooperate with the Navy at the Navy Yard uh, and try to hold on to what he can. Uh, when this is going on, he and his men are located near Fort Barrancas, where some army barracks and officers' quarters once existed. Uh, He will decide, however, that he cannot hold on to the five forts that existed on Pensacola Bay. Uh, He had to choose one. So working with the Navy, he will transfer his command, his 50 men from Fort Barrancas, and they will cross south over Pensacola Bay and go into Fort Pickens. Uh, He will also receive about 30 sailors. uh, And so this small command of about 80 or 85 men, uh, they're going to get the fort ready. Uh, Though Fort Pickens was larger than the other forts, its location out on Santa Rosa Island made it the safest option, uh, the safest fort (laughs) to be in. Uh, And his timing wound up being ideal for him uh, and his men. Uh, the day that this officer uh, named Adam Slemmer would uh, finish his move to Fort Pickens was the same day that delegates to the Florida Secession Convention voted to leave the union. Wow,
1: good timing for sure.
0: <laughs> good timing for that garrison, uh, but the timing was not good for Florida militia. Um, It's important to know, too, that at this time, when these things are happening, there is no such thing as the Confederate States of America. The Confederate government will not be established until early February, uh, weeks away. And and so it's going to be Florida with the support of Alabama militia, who uh, just two days after Adam Slemmer finished his move, they will take over the federal property that he no longer controlled on Pensacola Bay. So they seized, they captured, uh, they forced themselves onto the Pensacola Navy Yard and into Advanced Redoubt, Fort Barrancas, the Spanish water battery and Fort McRae uh, (laughs) and began to create defenses. Uh, Eventually their defense line uh, ran for about four miles um, and it would include additional earth and earthworks which uh, protected cannon and the soldiers who worked those cannon all looking across the bay at that lonely Union Sentinel uh, named Fort Pickens on Santa Rosa Island.
1: <laughs> but, um, um, it almost feels a little bit like you slightly trapped. <laughs> uh, it,
0: the, the feeling uh, was probably sincere. Uh, now I should say that he would work with uh, his counterpart for a time. Um, he would communicate with a man named William Chase. History is full of ironies. Uh, William Chase had been uh, born in what is today Maine. Uh, He attended and graduated West Point. Uh, After graduating West Point, Chase became an army engineer and spent over 40 years in service to the United States as an army engineer. Uh, Around 1856 though, Chase resigned Um, and would eventually be called on by the state of Florida to command its militia. Uh, Chase led the Florida militia in seizing the federal property on Pensacola Bay. But Chase is also the army engineer who supervised the building of Fort Pickens, (laughs) Fort McCray, Fort Barrancas, and a part of Advanced Redoubt. Uh, So when he goes over, and calls on Slemmer to surrender Fort Pickens, Chase knows very well that if he cannot take and hold Fort Pickens, he and the state of Florida cannot control Pensacola Bay, Hmm. which is important uh, at that time initially, because the capital of the Confederacy is not located very far at that time in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh,
1: okay, yeah.
0: Right up there. Uh, However, the capital of the Confederacy will move to Richmond, Virginia, after Virginia seceded from the Union a few months later in April of 61. The American public, I I, I think they largely overlook uh, what's going on here on Pensacola Bay in early 1861. Um, uh, Americans living at that time, I, I think, aren't closely in tune with what's unfolding on Pensacola Bay, uh, most, my sense is, are looking to a similar situation in which Southern forces are surrounding a small Union garrison in a fort named Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. And that's where the first shot of the Civil War will will be fired in uh, mid-April of 61. Um, And because shots will never be fired, uh, well, the first shots of the Civil War are not fired at Fort Pickens. Um, It becomes a little bit uh, something of this obscure story in this grander narrative. Right, right. Now, uh, one thing that I I would like to add is that because of the Union Garrison at Fort Pickens in the first few months of 1861, uh, they provide a unique opportunity two enslaved people living in Northwest Florida, but also living in Southern Alabama. On March 12, 1861, uh, just about eight days after Abraham Lincoln was sworn in as president of the United States, uh, and exactly one month before the first shots of the Civil War were fired, uh, four enslaved people approached four Pickens. Slemmer would meet them and learn from them that they believed Slemmer and the Union soldiers at the fort were placed there to both protect them and grant them their freedom. Hmm. Slemmer would, however, uphold a law called the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which required that enslaved people who were escaping from slavery be returned to their enslavers. So Slemmer would load the four freedom seekers into a boat and personally see to it that they were returned to Pensacola. When Slemmer returned to the fort on that trip, uh, he discovered that four more freedom seekers had sought safety Uh, and Liberty at Fort Pickens. They too were returned to slavery. So the efforts of these eight freedom seekers ultimately failed. However, they became the very first freedom seekers to voluntarily enter union lines in what became the civil war. Hmm. They set the stage for future freedom seekers who sought freedom Uh, in Union lines, uh, in places throughout what became the Confederacy where the Union army was located. Uh, Though these eight freedom seekers failed, uh, more would eventually cross Pensacola Bay uh, or Santa Rosa Sound and go out to Santa Rosa Island and eventually enter the Union camp in and around Fort Pickens, making it This place where enslaved people labored and where a crime against the Black race had been committed, yet 27 years later, when the Civil War begins, it suddenly becomes an instrument that will be used to destroy slavery and emancipate millions of Black men, women, and children.
1: Right. And I believe you recently found, I mean, obviously, this general was... You know, returning them based on the law at the time did and but you've now found that it was the fort was actually used later on as part of the underground railroad is that true
0: that is true so um today uh, there are two sites within gulf islands national seashore that are identified as verifiable underground railroad destinations. Uh, Those include Fort Pickens but also the 64-acre Fort Barrancas area on the Naval Air Station Pensacola. Um, These are new designations having been applied just recently in 2020 and 2021 this year. Um, So a lot of these stories are very new uh, and for the first time we are uh, interpreting them uh, to Uh, both virtual and physical visitors who are coming to the park. Um, The underground, to understand how they relate to the Underground Railroad, we have to have an understanding of what the Underground Railroad was. Um, And what it was, was a a movement. Uh, I like to think of it as this movement uh, involving um, enslaved people or or black people, both uh, enslaved and free, but also white allies Uh, in getting enslaved people, assisting them uh, in the fight to be free. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what the Underground Railroad was. Uh, Some might interpret Underground Railroad quite literally and (laughs) believe it to be an underground railroad uh, or these passageways underground leading to uh, these stations and relying on conductors and engineers to escort people uh, north to the free Northern states or beyond to Canada. Um, but for some enslaved people, it made more sense to seek freedom going south. And for enslaved people here on the Gulf Coast early on, well really during the American Civil War, they would escape to freedom on the Underground Railroad coming to Union armies, wherever they were located around Pensacola. Okay. So that is the Underground Railroad. It's resistance by enslaved people um, working with uh, sometimes black allies, white or uh, free black allies and free white uh, people to to become free. Right. Um, so the role that Fort Pickens plays as a, a destination on the, on the Underground Railroad um, The story of those eight freedom seekers, though they failed, is a story that shows that it served as a destination. Um, But more enslaved people do make it to Fort Pickens and do gain their freedom. Uh, One story that I I like to share is that of um, a married enslaved couple named Peter Dyson and Henrietta. Because they were enslaved, uh, there are so many aspects of their lives that we do not know. We do not know where they were born. Uh, We don't know when they were born or how they came to be in Pensacola. Uh, Their story comes to us though, because of their journey, uh, their successful journey to Fort Pickens. Uh, What we do know though, is that Peter Dyson uh, had labored on, uh, the forts or in the Navy yard here on Pensacola Bay for at least 20 years before the civil war. Uh, he was, uh, enslaved by Jasper Strong, who I mentioned before that contractor who, uh, built many of the forts here on Pensacola Bay. Uh, and, uh, Henrietta, uh, was enslaved by a local merchant who, uh, viciously assaulted her um, and and beat her uh, in the summer of 1861, uh, so bad that Henrietta fled into the pine forest located north outside of Pensacola. Uh, Peter learned about his wife's whereabouts and went to her, and in the woods near the Escambia River, uh, they devised a plan Uh, to use a small skiff and sail to Fort Pickens. Uh, Their first attempt failed, uh, but they would renew. And uh, on one night, possibly, I believe, August 1861, uh, they would sail across Escambia Bay, uh, across Pensacola Bay, dodging Confederate patrols, and then land Outside, um, or outside the fort on Santa Rosa Island, there were, had been rumors spread by Confederates that Union soldiers, uh, the Union forces, uh, would murder enslaved people uh, who went to the fort, all in an effort to uh, control uh, the black population, the uh, enslaved black population. Um, but nonetheless, freedom seekers went to Fort Pickens and Peter Dyson and Henrietta are just one example. So they do successfully arrive. Uh, Peter, because of his uh, experiences as a skilled artisan, as a bricklayer, uh, he is employed earning wages by the quartermaster department working on Fort Pickens. And the quartermaster department employed Henrietta to be a laundress for Union soldiers. Peter and Henrietta will live and work around Fort Pickens for a few months. And then it's going to be in October 1861 that they were placed aboard a ship and sent to New York City where they would live for as far as I can tell uh, in the years uh, later in the Civil War and possibly longer after the war ended.
1: Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask how they the ones that made it to Fort Pickens later, how they were able to get to the Union side. Um, so it was usually, it was by ship typically, or I would, they, I'm sure they weren't trying to go overland at that point.
0: Uh, there is really no, once you get to uh, Pensacola or one of the, uh, villages outside Pensacola, for a, uh, e- example at that time, uh, Woolsey or Warrington, uh, eventually you have to cross open waters, okay. which is by itself uh, a dangerous undertaking. Okay. So Peter and Henrietta, they were able to use a small skiff, and they sailed to freedom. Yeah. Uh, another freedom seeker, uh, a woman by the name of Olive Kelly, her journey began on the shores of Perdido Bay. But she had white allies uh, assist her uh, in sailing her toward the fort. However, a US Navy warship uh, took over this smaller vessel carrying Olive Kelly. They would take Kelly aboard and then transport her to Fort Pickens. Um, There's uh, at least one account of enslaved people using anything that floated and even swimming across these open waters because of how powerful that pool of freedom was inside them. Right. Uh, And tragically, we learn from one account that not all freedom seekers made the voyage across the open waters successfully. Uh, There's gonna be an article in the local newspaper um, sharing that Evidence had washed up ashore, uh, and the reporter believed the the articles on the shore to be the belongings of freedom seekers who likely drowned in the attempt and gaining their freedom. Right,
1: right. Now, did uh, I think you called him Slimmer or is it Schlimmer? Um, did he ever regret sending those original eight uh, freedom seekers back, or was he? kind of apathetic to the whole thing. I don't know if you know, even know that. Uh,
0: we do not know. Uh,
1: in fact, there are so
0: many aspects of who Slemmer was uh, beyond the uniform. Uh, most of what we know about Slimmer comes through official military, uh, military reports. Um, but we also learn a, a little bit about him uh, through his actions. Uh, from January through April, 1861. Um, We know that his father, uh, back in Pennsylvania, had been pretty active uh, with the Democratic Party uh, at a local level. Um, And in the 1860 election, the Democratic Party would actually split between northern and southern camps, uh, which would be a factor in the rise of Abraham Lincoln and the Republican party. Um, but we don't know if his father's politics influenced Slimmer in any way.
1: Right. Uh, there's
0: no personal letters, diaries that we know to have existed. Um, I will say too, that uh, I think a, a reason that we don't know a lot about Slimmer too, and why much, uh, if any correspondences did survive, um, may have been lost. Uh, he will pass away in 1868, he'll die on the west, uh, out west on the frontier. Um, And he'll never have in the post-war years, when veterans, both Union and former Confederates, are writing uh, profusely about their wartime experiences and their roles, and they're elevating their roles and their stories. Uh, Nobody is serving as a champion for Slimmer, Okay. So, we, we just don't know, uh, and I don't know that we will ever know how he thought or what he felt um, about his decision to return those freedom seekers. Okay. Now, Slimmer was replaced by another Union officer once the Civil War begins. Uh, this officer was from New Jersey. Uh, he, too, had attended and graduated West Point. Uh, he would uh, serve in the Seminole War, one of the Seminole Wars. Uh, he would see service in the U.S.-Mexican War uh, and see early service on the Civil War. Uh, his name it was Harvey Brown. He was a colonel. And he is he reminds me a lot of Adam Slemmer in that we don't know much about Harvey Brown. Uh, Historians haven't latched on to Brown and have torn into every aspect of his life. Um, And that may be because there's not a lot in the historical record for historians to explore. But we know with certainty where Harvey Brown stood on the subject of what would have been at that time referred to as contraband. uh, But really, these enslaved people are freedom seekers. Uh, It's June 22nd, 1861. Uh, Harvey Brown writes to the War Department and asks what he is to do about the numbers of freedom seekers entering his Union lines. And he tells the War Department that he will not uh, be voluntarily instrumental in returning a poor wretch to slavery, but will await further orders. Hmm. So in a way, he is telling the War Department I'm not going to be a tool here. I'm not going to return enslaved people. Uh, and I'm going to hold on to them until right. maybe you tell me to do otherwise. <laughs> right. Right. Until until my higher officers command me. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and that wouldn't happen, by the way. Um, uh, shortly after the first shots of the Civil War were fired, uh, Abraham Lincoln called for a special session of the U.S. Congress uh, and Congress would pass uh uh, some war measures, uh, one of them uh, would, um, would be the first Confiscation Act, uh, which would take effect around early August 1861, and it would uh, give Lincoln, as commander-in-chief, the ability uh, to command officers in the field that uh, they do not need to return enslaved people whose enslavers were an open rebellion to the United States. Okay. So if you were an enslaved person and you entered a union camp and you told the uh, commanding officer that your enslaver was a Confederate <laughs> or supporting <laughs> the Confederate war effort, uh, that officer would have uh, some leverage, right. some justification in retaining and providing asylum.
1: Right, right. Well- we are running a little bit tight on time, so I'm going to go ahead and skip the next two kind of questions about the environment and the restoration of the forts. But um, sure. I do want to, because I think everything you've told is is quite important uh, from a historical standpoint, and a lot of this, you know, I didn't know when I finished the Florida Trail, you know, I did a tour of, of the fort, and I kind of walked around. We were also kind of tired from hiking <laughs> and all of right. that. But yeah. what would you, you know, Florida Trail hikers are finishing their hike, or even some, some of them start there, what would you advise hikers to see and visit and notice when they're coming to Fort Pickens? Um, you know, is there any tours they can attend? I mean, I'm sure you probably list a lot of the stuff on the websites, but anything you'd like folks to just kind of make a mental note of as, as they're um, visiting around that area?
0: Yeah. Um, so there's always the, the ranger program that I, I recommend attending. Uh, we offer, uh, tours of the fort, but also musket demonstrations and a cannon demonstration inside the fort. Uh, there is the Fort Pickens bookstore, uh, which is a great place to shop around for some keepsakes or, uh, some souvenirs, uh, to remember the experience by, uh, for the Florida trail hikers too, they will also want to know that there is a log book, um, for hikers to sign left in that bookstore, as well as a uh, Florida trail stamp uh, for them to get uh, as well to again, mark uh, the the great accomplishment that uh, they have uh, made. And then uh, some other things to do would include doing, uh, going and visiting the Fort Pickens Discovery Center Uh, which offer great uh, interactive exhibits uh, about the the natural environment, but also the historical and cultural places uh, of the national seashore. Uh, There is a brand new national park service app uh, that is free to download either through Google Play or the App Store. And that will allow you to download apps, uh, well, a app, I'm sorry, that will allow you uh, to go to different national parks um, and use apps to explore and maybe do a self-guided tour, not just for for, uh, Gulf Islands, but for uh, many of the other national parks that also exist. Um, On Pensacola Bay, there is a a ferry service, uh, which offers um, uh, riders to go from Fort Pickens to Pensacola Beach to downtown. It runs that loop to those three Ferry Piers. Uh, And it offers uh, a great opportunity to access the waters of the National Seashore um, and to get to see a a different side of Santa Rosa Island as well. Uh, And after a, a long hike, uh, I would imagine that uh, taking a dip either in <laughs> Pensacola Bay or the Gulf of Mexico uh, would be a great idea. Yes. Uh, so if I had just finished uh, a thirteen hundred mile hike, I think I would uh, walk over to the Gulf of Mexico and just sit in the uh, the water and contemplate what I have just accomplished, um, but also uh, look at the the places around me and. and think deeply about how the past events of that place have shaped the world that we live in and try to better understand that world by looking at the places and the people and the stories uh, preserved at Gulf Islands.
1: Right. Now, do you, have, do you recommend any books if people want to read further or is there anything listed on the website that, that can, I can point people to?
0: Uh, let's see. So... If somebody is interested in learning more about uh, Pensacola and the Civil War, uh, there's a, a book uh, called, um, oh boy, I believe it's called um, Pensacola, a thorn in the side of the Confederacy by a historian named James Pierce. Um, there, If you want to learn about Pensacola as a, uh, Revolving Door on the Underground Railroad, there's a great book by a historian named Matthew Clavin named *Amy for Pensacola. Uh, If you're wanting to learn more about the natural and the cultural history of the United States on the Gulf of Mexico, there's a wonderful new book, um, newer book called uh, The Making of an American Sea, uh, The Gulf by a historian named Jack Davis. Um, I, I think those three books uh, would uh, give anybody a, a really great uh, introduction um, to our part of of the country. Right, right.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I honestly, I could have kept going <laughs> on listening to you basically give this wonderful history lesson um, and learn so much from you. Um, unfortunately, I just don't have the time at the moment, but Uh, I know that other people will probably learn a lot from just what you've told me today, and I'm definitely interested in learning more. So I'm going to check out some of those books you mentioned. And I definitely appreciate you, uh, you know, telling me a little bit more about Fort Pickens and its history and taking the time to chat with me today.
0: Yeah, I appreciate uh, you offering us this opportunity uh, and giving us the opportunity to to share these stories with your audience, your listeners. So thank you so much.
1: That's it for my conversation with Casimir Rosecki with the National Park Service at Gulf Islands National Seashore. You can find show notes for this episode at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com with relevant links to the episode there. Until next time, happy hike.